If the heart guards love and purity, and the brain controls intellect, what doth, I ask of you, reside within the kidney? This episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind is brought to you by Lark Train, a poet who has a very funny poem called The Youthful Ode to the Kidney, which we will link in the description. But today, the answer to the question, what doth reside within the kidney, is, as always for this podcast, cancer. Josh, today we're going to be talking about early renal cell cancer, specifically the most common component, the clear cell renal cell cancer, and how, as, as is always, our prerogative on this, on this show, how we manage it if there is indeed anything to manage. Hashtag foreshadowing. But Josh, what is this cancer that, that doth dwell in the kidney? Please enlighten us about renal cell cancer before we get started. Thank you so much for asking me, Michael, and I hope you've had a great week, and I hope our listeners have also had a great week. I've had a great week because I got to use the word doth on a podcast. Yep. Highlights. Great heart. So moving on to renal cell carcinomas. RCCs, as I will abbreviate them, make up 85% of primary renal neoplasms. The remainder is covered by urothelial, which is transitional cell carcinomas, which is about 8%, and other parenchymal epithelial tumors, such as oncocytomas, collecting duct duct tumors, and renal sarcomas. And all of these are exceptionally rare. For kids, this is not a child oncological podcast. Nephroblastomas, also known as Wilms tumors, are common, about 5 to 6%. But let's, let's dig a little bit deeper. You know, I love to talk about epidemiology, risk factors, and management. So the epidemiology states varies widely depending on the region. The highest is in the Czech Republic and North America, with the US of A having 80,000 new cases and 14,000 deaths from RCC each year. And worldwide, there are over 400,000 cases per year and greater than 170,000 deaths annually. So looking at that, that's like, oh, do half of the people die? And the answer is no most of these cancers are caught early and if you catch any cancer early you're likely to be cured with respect to risk factors males again take the uh the the pedestal here and predominantly between the sixth and eighth decade of life with a median age of 64. when with the extent of disease as i mentioned localized is diagnosed in 65 percent Regional disease, when we're talking about spread to regional lymph nodes, about 17%. And metastatic disease is a further 16%. 3% is uncharacterized for those doing the mathematics. Five-year overall survival rate has doubled in the last 60 years. So this is phenomenal. From 34% to 62% in 1996, and up to now 75% from 2009 to 2015. Interestingly, the incidence of renal cell carcinoma has tripled compared to the fatality rate, primarily due to early detection and smaller tumor sizes that are removed. Risk factors, as I love talking about, include smoking, do not smoke, do not start smoking, also do not vape. There's not enough evidence on that, but I'm sure it's bad for you. Hypertension, most definitely, and it smells terribly. Hypertension, obesity, 
acquired cystic polycystic kidney disease and chronic kidney disease, occupational exposures, cadmium, asbestos, which hopefully we will see fewer cases of as the years progress, and petroleum byproducts. There's also genetic factors, Michael. The uh, do you know the most famous genetic mutation? Is that the von Hippel-Lindau mutation? It is the von Hippel-Lindau increases your risk exponentially, um, and also interestingly, sickle cell disease, as in sickle cell anemia, sickle cell disease. I suspect as much, but I guess my question with that risk factor is. We assume people around the Mediterranean would have an increased incidence, although that's not reported. So it would be interesting to look at the statistics of the Mediterranean-type countries and their risks of renal cell carcinoma. Moving on to pathophysiology, and we try not to get bogged down too much in this because you end up going down a rabbit hole, and that rabbit hole never ends, especially when we're not pathologists. So... One of the interesting facts is that previously they'd classified lesions that are less than three centimeters as adenomas and not metastatic. It is now not, I'm sorry, not carcinogenic or carcinomas. It is now known that you do get smaller cancers in the renal, smaller renal cell carcinomas that are less than three centimeters. And this all comes into that early detection philosophy and the increased survival rates because they're no longer just watching and waiting, I suspect. When we're looking at the breakdown of the pathophysiology type, Michael was right in and stealing my thunder. Clear cell carcinomas are the predominantly predominant histological subtype. They make up about 85% of the tumors. There's usually a deletion in chromosome P3. And there is a poor prognosis when it's associated with a higher nuclear grade or the presence of sarcomatoid pattern, particularly with diagnosis of an early stage disease. So when I say that, if it's a localized lesion and you've got that mutation or a sarcomatoid type feature, you should be worried or at least be more inclined to talk about adjuvant therapy. Then you've also got von Hippel-Lindau, which is that mutation on chromosome 3, and that's implicated in most cases of renal cell carcinoma. Then we've also got BAP1 mutations. So when you're looking through your histological report and you've got BAP1 positive, these again are more aggressive. The second most common type are papillary, about 10 to 15%, and that they're divided into type 1 and type 2. Type 1 is generally more of a favorable prognosis and type 2 is more aggressive and less likely to have an alteration in the MET pathway. Moving on from this, you've got chromo- chromophobe, which is between 5 and 10%, oncocytic carcinomas, which are between 3 and 7%, collecting ducts, which are very rare, and molecularly defined renal cell carcinomas, which I'm assuming it's based on a mutation because they don't fit any of the previous grouping. What do you do to treat? If it's a localized disease, so I'm talking about stage 1, 2, or 3, surgery. The surgeons come in, they whip out your kidney or do a partial nephrectomy and they save the day. Sometimes this requires a radical or partial to preserve renal parenchyma depending on the situation. And there's multiple factors involved about whether you have a nephrectomy. If you're comorbid and you've got multiple medical problems, they'll be less likely to whip out a kidney. It's quite a 
large surgery, I would assume, and you don't want to increase that risk. And then the other interesting thing is if you've got bilateral RCC, which can happen with inherited conditions. Again, von Hippel lend down, tubular sclerosis for those who've seen physician exams. That's a great question they love to ask. And papillary renal cell carcinoma. Again, surgery is recommended in these cases. For the non-surgical candidates, which I've already mentioned, there are some other options, which include cryoablation and radiofrequency ablation. When looking at risk factors, we stratify according to, I guess, low risk factors, high risk factors, intermediate. Usually there, there is a scale, but this is used in the metastatic setting, and I'm not going to be talking about that today. So I'm talking about what are the risk factors in the curative setting. So intermediate risk is PT2 tumors with a grade four or sarcomatoid features. Um, and high grade, high risk is when you've got a large tumor. So it goes from P1 to P4. P4 is a large tumor um, of any grade because a grade looks at the histological subtype and it can be no negative. Alternatively, if you've got lymph nodes involved, it's considered a high risk as well. And they've mentioned metastatic, but again, I'm not talking about metastatic in this particular case. So, Michael, as a summary, an interesting, very varied cancer type, lots of different subtypes, lots of different, I guess, treatment modalities. And in the metastatic setting, this really comes into play about what your treatment options are. But today we are talking about curative treatment. It is a very, very interesting cancer and I think it's also worth mentioning as our studies will uh, hint at really not a cancer where chemotherapy has ever had a place I sort of group it in with melanoma in that regard in that you have a conspicuous absence of chemotherapeutic options for renal cell because back in the olden days before our tyrosine kinase inhibitors, before immunotherapy, we basically threw chemotherapy at renal cell cancers and it never really worked. So the abundance of treatment options, as we will see both in this episode and then in our next episode where we'll do advanced renal cell cancer where it opens up significantly, um, it is very interesting that there is no chemotherapy. It's not even like, um, I'm trying to think of an example, like lung cancer where chemotherapy is still sort of part, but it's frequently taken out for immunotherapy by itself and then is used later. You never use chemotherapy, um, and to a lesser extent, radiotherapy um, in renal cell cancer, which is why surgery, immunotherapy, and tyrosine kinases are the flavor of the day. And Josh, take us back to... Uh, to start um, in the adjuvant setting and a fair warning to our listeners this is a little bit controversial um, about what to use and what not to use so local guidelines will apply always follow your local guidelines etc etc but discuss Josh the use of sunitinib with assure and I will assuredly be listening Thank you for using that pun. I have, you're doing what I do, which means I'm just very happy. I'm just going to sit here and be happy that you use that. I just, I just have to get in before you do so that hopefully you won't just uh, use a pun every second sentence. Otherwise, we'll never get through this episode. We won't, but we're trying to limit it. All right. I think it's, all, it's, a, it's a bit of a controversial topic, and you're right. And 
The trial I'll be discussing is actually a 2016 publication called Ashore um, or ECOG Akron E2805. We will link it in the description, which is looking at adjuvant sinitinib or serafinib in high-risk non-metastatic renal cell carcinomas. This was a double-blinded placebo-controlled randomized phase three trial. The background to this is that sinitinib and serafinib and a lot of tyrosine kinase inhibitors have been used in metastatic renal cell carcinoma with pretty good outcomes. Would you agree, Michael? I would. Good. All right. (laughs) And what we do know from renal cell carcinomas is that they are highly vascular and they proliferate predominantly through dysregulation of the vascular endothelial growth factor, VEGF pathway. So the question is, if you inhibit the pathway, do you stop the cancer from coming back? There are cancers such as, I think an example would be, my mind's going blank, but when you use imatinib in, uh, what's, the, what's the cancer Gist. Um, gist, thank you. That's the gist of that statement. That's the gist of that, thank you. When you use imatinib in gist cancers in the adjuvant setting, it's shown to reduce the risk of recurrence. Whereas, and it's the same theory, right? If you use an anti-angiogenic agent, you reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. These are both tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and it was a double-blinded, as I said, placebo-controlled randomized phase three trial where you had three arms, so sinitinib, serafinib, or placebo. The inclusion criteria, as expected, you had to have biopsy-proven disease, and they stratified according according to clear cell or non-clear cell, good cardiac function, good renal function, and they were given the treatment for 54 weeks. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, and the secondary endpoint was overall survival and disease-free survival for clear cell, along with the toxic toxicities, according to their usual, you know, guidelines. Predominantly males from an epidemiological perspective, predominantly Caucasian, take that as a grain of salt, ethnicity, non-Hispanic, performance status, most people were pretty good. And they went through the surgical operation, whether it was open or laparoscopic, um, and whether they had a partial or radical. Predominantly, most people had a radical nephrectomy, I suspect the only times they would have done a partial is if they were that worried about the renal function or if it was that small that it could potentially conserve it. Histology was very similar to what we discussed earlier in our introduction with over 80% of each arm being clear cell and between 6 and 9% being papillary and a smaller subset of the other histological subtypes I meant I, I mentioned. From a Risk score, so the UCLA International Staging System Risk Stratification, 50% were intermediate and then 50% were very high. We found that majority of patients selected or two-thirds were stage three, which is kind of a good thing because you want to know in the high-risk cohort, is there going to be a benefit? You're more likely to see that outcome in a stage three cancer rather than a stage one or stage two. And now let's talk about the results. So in summary, this was a negative, <laughs> a negative trial. And what do I mean by that? I mean, the, the, I, what I mean by that is if you look at the Kaplan-Meier curves where 
as people unfortunately die and it follows the path. There is no splitting of the curves. The median disease-free survival is 70 months for sinitinib, 73.4 months for serafinib, and 79.6 months for placebo. Disease-free survival did not differ significantly between the groups. The hazard ratio for sinitinib versus placebo was 1.02, across that, that line of significance, right? And for serafinib, the hazard ratio was 0.97, although confidence interval crossed one, it went from 0.8 to 1.17. Not really doing anything, not giving me any good signals here. The median, the overall survival did not differ either. And all groups did better than predicted at the time of study design um, with the median overall survival not being reached. But potentially that's in the context of if they did recur, you've got newer treatments and they're actually not going to die because of the cancer in the time frame that has previously occurred. When we talk about the toxicities, it's like every other tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Hypertension can occur across all the groups, including placebo and fatigue. Fatigue you'll get in all of our drugs. Hand foot syndrome, which can be very toxic, um, peeling of the hands and the feet. And just, you know, it can become to a point where people can't walk properly. So you really have to keep that in mind. And they're, pro- they're probably the predominant um, side effects as well. Although interesting enough, I would have thought diarrhea would be there, but it doesn't seem to be. Oh, so apologies, it is there. Um, 10%. So again, up there with pretty significant, although not unexpected side effects from our trial. There was a follow-up in 2017 looking at overall survival. And again, really there was no overall survival benefit. But there are some good discussion points, Michael, and I wanted to highlight this. The first being these findings are similar to those of adjuvant chemo. So pretty much no benefit as so, Michael. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> absolutely nothing. And I'm sorry I forgot to mention that in my little intro blurb, but I did read it and then I just didn't put it in there. And the beautiful thing of this trial, and we don't always talk about negative trials, is that the it's good. Like it's good to know that it doesn't work because it helps prevent costs, it helps prevent toxicities associated with inappropriate use of these agents. In the adjuvant setting, they raise the question with whether micrometastases that presumably result in recurrent disease have a blood supply that is not as susceptible as those with macrometastases, such as you see with the VEGF inhibitors in the metastatic setting. The other question is also these are early TKIs. There's multiple lines of TKIs that are found to be more effective and less toxic and whether that might be implicated in outcomes, we don't know. I mean, there's going to be at least one study looking at immunotherapy plus a TKI, so stay tuned. We might look at that at some point if we can find it. But the summary is placebo is just as good as either TKI I mentioned and surveillance is key. So, Josh, obviously that study is a damning indictment on sunitinib and TKI in the adjuvant setting. Um, But just for an extra bit of spice and an extra bit of confusion, uh, how does that compare with S-Track, which is contradictory, shall we say? I'm glad you brought up S-Track. So the issue is 
S-Track, which is another study, it was done before this, actually did show disease-free survival. S-Track study in which sinitinib was tested as an adjuvant, in which sinitinib was tested as an adjuvant treatment were published. Somewhat surprisingly, the study yielded positive results in median. Indeed, the median duration of disease-free survival was 6.8 years, in the sinitinib group and 5.6 years in the placebo group with a hazard ratio of 0.76. It is thus clear that the above figures will give hope for those who suffer from disease in the future. However, Ashura contradicted this where we now see one trial being positive, one trial being negative. So the thing is in the Ashura trial, patients with a PT1B tumor were allowed um, while the S-Track PT1 patients without nodal involvement were not allowed. Furthermore, the histological presence of at least a component of clear cell was mandatory in S-Track, but not in Assure. So what, what this means is that they have selected a subpopulation that might actually benefit from sinitinib in this trial. So furthermore, the heterogeneity, which I love that word, we talk about it every week, exists amongst presently in nomograms aimed at estimating the risk of recurrence in localized kidney disease. So what that means is that people, when they work out estimated recurrences, they do it differently, and therefore it's it's hard to, it's like apples and pears and comparing. So I think it's it's a bit, I mean, I'm not an expert, so I'm not going to be one to talk about how they treated the study design but it seems that there were different inclusion criteria different protocols involved and because of that it's actually hard to you can't compare trials right you can't compare a to b it's a bit of chalk and cheese did you have any points about it michael you wanted to bring up not really i think it just shows that the evidence here is very very difficult to interpret and there's a risk of sort of, I guess, picking and choosing the evidence that you want to believe, which I guess is always a risk in, in oncology and medicine and science, if we're going to go really macro. Um, but the fact that the uh, Assure trial um, included a, a wider range of patients and the study I'm going to talk to talk about in a second very much did in, uh, focused on the uh, intermediate to high risk patients, so patients at intermediate or high risk of recurrence. So those people who are at low risk of recurrence, we know probably aren't going to get any benefit anyway. Uh, But the question is, how much did that skew the results? And do you think it skewed the results enough to explain the difference? And I'm sure, as you said, there were differences in protocol, differences in uh, recruitment, and obviously differences in demographic and population. This is the main reason why you can't do cross-study comparisons. But there is enough controversy and enough inconsistency across those two results that the the question will probably never be answered because we now have less toxic treatments. And if we know the benefit is... So we don't need to worry. Yeah, yeah exactly. And if, if we know that the benefit, the, the toxicity of drugs like sunitinib is going to be significant, which it can be. Sunitinib can be a very, very dirty drug as far as toxicity goes then 
there, there is much less of an appetite, not just for using it in clinical practice, but also to do further research. So, this, so the question of whether sunitinib has a benefit in the adjuvant setting may never be answered because it might never be looked at again, which I guess is sort of an answer in itself. We've sort of moved on from asking the question. We can be assured that there are better options around. Well, the the assurances are uh, as of yet incomplete, which is a nice segue into uh, the study I'm going to talk about, Keynote 564, which I will talk about with your assured uh, approval, Josh. Please go to town. <laughs> okay. So... The logical question from that arises from the controversy generated by the Ashore S-Track uh, disconnect is, is there anything better? Is there another group of therapeutic agents that have a better or a higher likelihood to provide a benefit to patients who have undergone surgery for renal cell cancer? And Josh, I'm so glad you asked because Keynote 564 aim to answer that exact question by reaching for immunotherapy. And I'm sure that this was just a knee-jerk reaction. It probably wasn't. Immunotherapy has a very strong track record in renal cell cancer. Not quite as strong as melanoma, but it is probably... has the second largest magnitude of benefit uh, in renal cell cancer, second only to melanoma. That's what I'm trying to say. (laughs) Um, So... Naturally, when you have a good when you have a good agent in this business, you always say, "Well, how early can we use it?" Um, which is probably the uh, rationale for trying sunitinib. Sunitinib, as we will see in coming episodes, works very well, surprisingly well for such a, such an old drug in the metastatic setting, to the point where we're still using it actually. Uh, but immunotherapy has undergone the same process. So, keynote five six four was a phase three randomized double-blind international trial. And I think this is the first time in weeks or even months, Josh, that we've had two double-blind international trials. I'm so used to sort of reflexively saying, oh, but, you you know, they didn't have a placebo, they didn't have a control, and and this is the reason why. But actually, I don't have to say that anymore. Uh, It was studying pembrolizumab compared with placebo, which was given every three weeks for 17 cycles, which, if you do the maths, roughly equates to a year. Quite a large study, 994 patients were enrolled and randomised one-to-one to the two arms. And the patients that they enrolled were patients that were both post-partial or total nephrectomy, plus or minus metastectomy. So uh, the small uh, proportion of these patients, about 5 or 6%, uh, ended up actually having metastatic deposits removed at the time of surgery as well, which is something that I don't really see... In clinical practice, and Josh, feel free to chime in with your own personal experiences, but I suspect that the margin for error or the the window for a metastectomy is fairly small um, because you can't go cutting out or scooping out is the word I like to use when I'm talking to patients, uh, uh, metastases that are everywhere and Renal cell cancer has a tendency to go to the bones, which makes, which is practically very difficult. It has a tendency to go to the brain. And you mentioned the vascular nature. Uh, renal cells are notorious for bleeding, which is obviously potentially catastrophic. And everybody who's probably had a 
Institute on X-rays has heard of the infamous cannonball mets, which are also heavily associated with renal cell. Josh, have you seen patients who have had a metastectomy in the setting of RCC? No, I have not. I've seen occasionally you see patients who've had things, multiple things chopped out, or you've had multiple episodes of radiotherapy for local control, but at least at the center I work at, that's rarely done. The toxicities, especially you don't remember an age cohort that's usually 60 plus can be pretty significant. And if you want them to have what is potentially a far better treatment option, you'd be wary to cut things out if immunotherapy works so well. Yeah, well, we will see exactly how well the immunotherapy works. Um, but it is it is something that is that is rarely done. But I guess that you, it is always worth discussing with your friendly urologist slash thoracic surgeon, neurosurgeon, spinal surgeon, wherever the... Uh, colorectal surgeon. Colorectal surgeon or uh, metastectomy surgeon of choice. General if, surgeon. Yes, just a general surgeon. Can go and cut things out wherever they are. Upper and, GI surgeon. Okay, Josh is now just listing types. Are we just going to go all the surgeons? Josh, Josh is now just listing types of surgeons. Uh, to dermatologist to pull this runaway train back on track. <laughs> um, eligible patients for the study had histologically confirmed RCC with at least a clear cell component, and this uh, ties into something that we'll probably talk about in a later episode. In that, many RCCs are heterogeneous. They don't have to be 100% clear cell. In fact, most of them aren't. And most of them can have features of non-clear cell. And, and the uh, proportion is sometimes thought of as a, uh, a risk factor or a uh, uh, indicator of how likely something is to respond to standard treatment. But for this study, patients had to have a clear cell component. I don't believe there was any sort of uh, protocol on the proportion of the uh, sample tumor that had to be clear cell. They broke this up into three risk categories. They had intermediate to high risk, which was patients who had a PT2 or PT3 tumour. Patients with a PT2 tumour, it had to be grade 4 or sarcomatoid. Patients with a T3 tumour, it could be any grade. But these patients had to have no nodal involvement and no uh, no metastatic deposits. Uh, Patients with a higher recurrence risk had a tumour stage 2 which usually involved a T4 tumour, so a big, big primary. It had to be grade 4 or sarcomatoid or sarcomatoid differentiation, which, uh, as Josh mentioned previously, is a risk factor for poor prognosis. The tumour stage had to be 3 or higher. And the third tier, the highest risk tier, was patients who had had metastatic disease resected. And these were defined as M1 patients with NED or no evidence of disease. Patients had to have no previous therapy, so they had to be completely treatment-naive, and they had to have surgery within 12 weeks of randomization. The primary endpoint was disease-free survival, and the secondary endpoints were overall survival, safety, and patient-reported outcomes. In terms of the demographics, the median age was 60 years old. 32%, about a third, were greater than or equal to 65 years old. Men accounted for the vast majority, with 70% in each arm, Uh, 85% of patients in each arm were ECOG-0. A smaller proportion, only 10%, had sarcomatoid features in their original uh, tumour. And uh, coming back to those uh, disease risk categories, so the intermediate to high-risk patients accounted for the vast majority. So 86.1% of patients were were placed in this intermediate to high-risk category, leaving only 
8% as definitively high risk and 6% with resected metastatic disease. So we often talk about patient uh, we often talk about trials selecting out the bad players whether it was just by a quirk of recruitment or whether it was by design. This study t- seems to focus on those who have a quote unquote lower relatively speaking risk of recurrence. In order to get onto the trial you had to be deemed to have a higher risk but in in that sort of subgroup there aren't people who have an extreme high risk, or that there aren't many people who have an extremely high risk of recurrence. I like to think of it as if you're almost inevitably going to recur, then you're probably going to be excluded. But if you've got high risk features, but you might not necessarily recur, then you're included. So if the dice has been rolled and it's on that six, which is that unlucky number, then they'll probably exclude you from the trial. Yeah, I guess practically speaking, though, these, because we know that, as you mentioned, the five-year survival for renal cell cancer has improved significantly. We know that just resection alone probably has a good outcome, even if the the recurrence risks are quite high. So it would be interesting to see how patients with very, very high-risk disease respond. Coming back to the results... So in the pembrolizumab group, 61% of patients completed all 17 cycles, so almost uh, all 12 months of treatment. And interestingly, Josh, in a study such as this, in an adjuvant therapy study, what do you think is the most common reason for uh, discontinuation of trial before you complete all 17 cycles? In an adjuvant study? If I was thinking of an adjuvant study, oh, maybe loss to follow-up. If they just don't want to continue, there's no kind of perceivable benefit. Other things would be toxicities, would mean people would leave, although it's immunotherapy, which is pretty well tolerated. That would be the two, the highest on my list. That's interesting. For once, we don't have a concurrence because when I was reading this study, I was just assuming that it would be actually disease recurrence, that the reason patients... Okay. Uh, stopped the therapy, either the placebo or the um, Pembro, would be that the cancer has come back. But actually, you are right. The most common reason for discontinuation is adverse events. And Josh is doing his little victory dance at the moment. Um, So 21% of patients (laughs) had uh, adverse events that led to discontinuation compared to 10% of patients that had disease recurrence. That's in the Pembrolizumab arm. But you compare that with the placebo group, where the most common reason for um, study discontinuation was recurrence at 20%. So we are sort of seeing a hint, an early hint, that uh, pembrolizumab potentially delays or prevents, we don't know yet, the uh, recurrence of renal cell cancer. The median duration of Pembro, this is another interesting point. So we said that 61% of patients completed all 17 cycles, but the median duration was 11 months out of 12. So the majority of patients are getting very, very close to actually completing their course. It's not like they're getting to uh, three months or even, even less before they actually drop out. So one that probably jives with the profile of immune mediated side effects in that they tend to have a bit of a delay, a bit of a lag time. Uh, But two, it does mean that the 
treatment is probably more tolerable than the 61% of patients completing all of it would imply. Uh, Disease-free survival is still developing. Now, this study was first published in 2020, 2021, um, and the most recent data, uh, the most recent interim analysis was published in September of last year, 2022. Um, And even in that 2022 interim analysis, the DFS, the median DFS has not been reached in either group. So this comes back to what I was saying before in that we know that complete surgery is still an effective um, treatment for early renal cell cancer. Um, However, as we mentioned before, with the uh, trends and the reasons why people actually came off the study treatment, uh, the um, early indications are that there is a benefit for, fem- for pembrolizumab. So in the most recent interim analysis, the hazard ratio uh, for disease-free survival was 0.63. So you are 37% less likely, according to some mathematical wizardry that I don't understand, to recur with pembrolizumab compared to placebo. In terms of safety, this is very much... Uh, of the same variety that we've seen in our countless other PEMBRO trials, um, where you have a higher rate of immune-mediated side effects, hypo- and hypothyroidism, hypoadrenalism, and other side effects that may or may not be related to the immunotherapy, such as fatigue, pruritus, and arthralgias. Treatment-related adverse events in the pembrolizumab group were present in 80% of patients. That's treatment-related adverse events of any grade. Severe... um, Treatment-related adverse events, grade 3 to 5, were present in 19%, and immune-related adverse events were present in 35%. I haven't compared that to the PEMBRO um, arms because it's all pretty much less. Uh, They also had a secondary endpoint of uh, patient-reported outcomes, and there was no significant difference, which I guess when you're comparing to placebo is good because you are comparing your therapy against literally nothing, or something that should not cause any side effects at all. So the fact that there's no significant difference in patient-reported outcomes um, can be uh, viewed as a positive for PEMBRO in the tolerability department. So what do we take away from Keynote 564? Well, it's still early days. There are rumblings of... Uh, positive uh, of a positive trial, which will be very interesting, will completely change the fabric of treatment of uh, early renal cell cancer. Um, at this stage, there is a small but significant improvement, but the data is still immature. And I haven't even mentioned the overall survival data because that's going to be a long time in coming. It might be something that we get in 10 years, or it might be something that we never get because the trial coordinators would have moved on by the time the data is mature. There is some increasing toxicity, which is to be expected. Um, And as I mentioned, the study has a higher proportion of intermediate risk patients. So uh, when we come to the inevitable subgroup analyses, when the data is mature, it will be difficult to accurately tease out which group benefits the most. I love the trial when you're talking about overall survival, Michael, because at the 24-month mark, with the interim publication, or this is the one before you're mentioning, the number of patients that were alive at the 24 months was 96.6% in the pembrolizumab arm and 93.5% in the placebo group. 
which looking at those numbers, that's insanely high for both arms after just a surgery. You can see why we haven't gotten a median survival and why it will probably be many, many years um, before we actually get accurate data. And at the end of the day, it might be a case of tailoring this very, very closely and very, very carefully to the patient in front of you. Um, If you have a patient who has higher risk of recurrence, you might sort of say, well, we want to maximize your risk and there is uh, maximize your likelihood of long-term survival and long-term response. So let's give you the Pembro. But if you have a patient who has lots of autoimmune conditions or lower risk features, it might be something where you say, uh, you know, I think the risks outweigh the benefits. So it might just be a case of, uh, as we always say, tailoring, tailoring it to the patient in front of you. But this might be one of those cases where you sort of your default setting is to not give it. But let's say that in three, five, or ten years, or however many years it is, the final results come back and there is a significant um, benefit. Uh, with pembrolizumab and people start using it. I guess the question is, and hopefully by that time the uh, legislation in Australia will have moved on by now, but in our country what we have basically is a once-in-a-lifetime policy. So you only get, under the pharmaceutical benefit scheme, you only get to use immunotherapy once. And so if you're using immunotherapy once, and I'm pretty sure we've asked this question multiple times on this program, what do you do if they recur? Now, in places like America or places where they don't have this once-in-a-lifetime legislation or policy, then... The obvious answer is if they recur, particularly if they recur quickly, use a TKI, but you have immunotherapy as a backup. Um, But if they do recur in Australia, then it is quite possible that you will just be stuck with TKIs. TKIs are no slouch in the... No, that is very true. That is very true. Um, But I guess that if you are having a patient who has really bad disease, or if you have a patient who has had a really good response, I should say, because if a patient recurs fairly quickly with adjuvant immunotherapy, you're going to say, well, it's probably not going to work in the metastatic setting either. But I guess as, as our uh, listeners will learn in the coming episodes, wink, please keep on listening. Um, Like, and subscribe and all that. Um, (coughs) Subscribe. (laughs) Yeah. We're we're getting increasingly (laughs) less subtle with that. Um, uh the standard of care treatment for uh metastatic setting uh, metastatic renal cell cancer in the high risk setting is ipinevo so maybe that ctla4 adds something to the pdl1 and might overcome that resistance there's some thoughts that adding the two agents together is better than the one by itself anyway we're going well off the tracks but the summary of keynote 564 if we're going to put it in a nutshell is that it is promising But much like many of our breast cancer trials, the benefit is numerically small because the treatment we have, that being surgery, is already very good. And it might take quite a while for us to actually get a definitive result from it. So watch this space, but um, don't anticipate anything anytime soon. I second that. And also thinking of the age bracket, maybe even if it does give a PFS or 
disease-free survival of 10 years, if they're 85 and they've lived a great life, then maybe you don't need overall survival in that cohort. But let's talk about next week, Michael. Next week on Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, Michael and Josh will be talking about metastatic renal cell carcinoma, where we delve into the world of other treatment options and we really look at these, I guess this medication at its best, where we see rather than looking for the PFS, we see people who aren't curable, but how long we can get them to live that great quality, long life with those they love. And also the uh, brave new world, which is not really a brave new world in many parts of the world, but the brave new world of mixing and matching TKIs with immunotherapy. It sounds a bit like a cauldron where you stick them all in and you make a bubbly, you know, you're the witch, you're the wizard, and you're like, oh, have this have this soup, my dear. It will make you live for a long time. I was, okay, I was going to go with uh, the amazing movie crossover. We've had uh, Freddy versus Jason. We've had uh, Captain America versus Iron Man. Next week we will have TKIs and immunotherapy joining forces against the evil cancer. And if you've loved what we've been talking about, Michael and I are launching a new segment to our show where we talk about one of the harder sides of oncology, which is managing patients and managing toxicities. Not just toxicities, but misinformation, disinformation, and really focusing on that holistic care of our patients. So stay tuned for that coming this Wednesday. Next Wednesday. Well, the Wednesday after you're listening <laughs> to this episode. So, coming Wednesday. Coming Wednesday. Uh, where these will be slightly different from our usual episodes. They'll be much smaller and they'll be focused much more on practicalities. We know that it can be very easy to be lost in the numbers for um, our main segments. And it can all be a little bit esoteric. But these are the practical things. If you've got a patient in front of you with mucositis which will be our first episode how do you grade it what do you do so look forward to uh, enjoying these bite-sized segments can't wait see you then mikey see you later